Hello, and welcome to the Committed Collective Podcast. This podcast is a dialogue between Adam Stone, Byron Hazley, and Steve Kerwin, often joined by informative guests through all walks of life. It's very informal, but very informative, and we're never quite sure where the conversation will lead us as we're talking about racial and socioeconomic inequality in our nation. Due to our national footprint, we're connecting through Zoom, so keep that in mind when you hear the audio. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at info at thecommittedcollective.org on our Facebook page or connecting with us on Instagram at the underscore committed collective. Hey, everybody. It is the Committed Collective podcast. We are joining you after a little break. We had a little bit of uh, voting to do the past few days, so excuse us for the delay. But with us today, you got Steve Kerwin and Zalatan Bagali joining me. Fellas, how are we doing? Good, Adam. Uh, obviously, this is the election episode. I know everybody turned in for that one. But before I... I do owe you an apology. Uh, I feel like our thousands of voters have wondered, is Adam Stone good at fantasy football? And the question is, Adam Stone is good at fantasy football. So don't think that just because my team beat his team that he doesn't have a good team. That's not fair. So I I felt like our last episode, I came down on you pretty hard. And knowing my luck, you'll beat me in the playoffs and then you will get the last lap. Well, I'm, I'm glad you cleared it up. I, I did wish you just kept that jinx on yourself so I can get some revenge here in a few weeks because we definitely will be seeing each other in the playoffs. Zalalem, how are you doing? Doing well, Adam. Thanks for having me. What's up, Steve? Nice to see you and hear you. We're here on Zoom. Recording. Always a pleasure. Um, so, yeah, no fantasy talk for me. I am second in my league right now. I mean, I'll say that. But oh, there you go. That's there you go. And, and we can't fact check you there, so you could say whatever you want. I would have said first <laughs> if I was you and now. Uh, yeah, you should trust me. I'm a lawyer, Steve. Okay, <laughs> that's right. I think I learned about that. So I think that's that's what we say. So no, appreciate you being on. Obviously, we don't have uh, Byron today, captain of the Detroit ship, but we do owe him a shout out because Detroit's going to get the highest voter turnout in 30 years. So shout out to uh, Byron out there in Detroit, making making moves and driving change. Yeah, Michigan. Hometown State doing me proud. I was a little worried at first, but they pulled Oof, it out. We both were. Yeah, let's let's get into that. Talking about the election, obviously starting at the top, we had a, a big presidential flip uh, in the race. We had the election looking like uh, President Trump was going to win. And we talked about the red mirage uh, a few weeks ago. Steve, I know you mentioned that in terms of how the initial votes will look on election night versus how the mail-in ballots would change things going over the next few days. And that's exactly what happened, especially in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Arizona. So uh, as a result, President-elect Joe Biden and President, or I guess Vice President-elect Kamala Harris have now started to give their uh, congratulatory speeches and started to accept the fact that they are projected to win the Electoral College and uh, get the election won for anybody who was not a Trump fan. So in that boat, I know that's the three of us that weren't huge Trump fans in terms of everything. So Zalalem, when you saw the things start to uh, shift. I know you're in Nevada, so you might have some ballots to count still, but when you saw things start to shift everywhere else, what were your thoughts and how are you feeling today? Thanks for mentioning that, Adam. As a native Nevadan, somebody who still lives here, I will go on record saying how proud I am of the state of Nevada and how it handled this election for a couple of reasons. One, um, 
we went all mail-in ballots this year. The legislature had a special session. You know, we don't, we're not in session all the time like other states are. We, we go into session every two years uh, for about four months. <laughs> and uh, we had special sessions this year to deal with COVID and, and the economy mm-hmm. and voting. And they passed, you know, they passed a bill that sent basically mail-in ballots to every voter in the state of Nevada. And so this was the most mail-in ballots we've ever had to process. Um, and I think a lot of people took advantage of that as well. And so um, never dealt with this before. It was unprecedented. And so, yeah, I know they're probably still counting now today. Um, but, you know, especially in Clark County, I really respected their their priority of getting it right instead of doing it fast. And so sometimes these things take time, you know? So yeah, proud of our state. Although the memes were very funny and I think somebody, if they have enough time, should probably get a book of those memes and just publish it because I think a lot of people will buy it, but that's kind of tongue in cheek. Generally speaking, I think uh, this was a historic election on this thing. You know, one term president is pretty rare. It's happened Mm -hmm. Only once in my lifetime, it happened right before I was born as well uh, with Jimmy Carter, but it happened with George H.W. Bush, and then it happened again in 2020. So it's pretty rare. Um, and the story for me, the two stories for me were Georgia and Arizona. You know, people have been talking about Georgia flipping for a couple election cycles. I didn't believe it. Um, the South tends to be red, at least uh, in our lifetimes. And so um, that was a surprise to me. And so is Arizona. And I think it was kind of interesting to see an expansion of the map in ways that I didn't expect, at least similar to 2008 in that sense, where we, had, where we started seeing states like Virginia, North Carolina. I mean, President Obama in 2008 won Indiana. I think a lot of people forget that, right? And so mm-hmm. that expansion of the map was interesting to see just as a political observer. Yeah, I know that you mentioned how much the mail-in ballot aspect was so much different this year, you know, given COVID-19 and the need to have things socially distanced more. Uh, I, I read a report that in Pennsylvania, normally there's about 600,000 mail-in ballots uh, during the election. And this year they had about 3 million. So, you know, that huge influx of ballots just could, you know, overloaded the system temporarily. You know, they still did everything they could to count as quickly as possible. But, you know, when you have five times as many ballots as you're used to, that's obviously going to make things slower than usual. So, yeah, like you said, Zalalem, I think it was great that people made it a point to get things right. And obviously there's a lot of scrutiny out there and a lot of people watching closely and waiting for any type of potential instance of fraud or misconduct. So, you know, people had to be on their toes. So it, it was good to see that the process eventually came together after all that time. Steve, what, what were your thoughts over the last week? You know, I apologize to you from episode nine about the fantasy football update. There, there was another segment in there that I, that I'm not going to apologize for. And that was that I said, we couldn't count on Ohio. And I was correct that we could not count on Ohio. I said that 38 votes is what, uh, president-elect now Biden was going to need to flip because I didn't think any states were going to turn blue. I was a little worried about Nevada and Minnesota. Minnesota wasn't even close. Um, Obviously, Zalalem got out there and made sure Nevada um, uh, didn't go the opposite way. But but Pennsylvania was going to drive this. Michigan, Wisconsin, these were states that um, 
Biden had a very, very high uh, polling advantage, it, it appeared. And then it wasn't as high as polls suggested. Um, but when you can go and get these type of voters that we didn't have in 2016 that, that got Trump in and then bring them back, um, you're going to see stats come out and you're going to see in major um, areas that Trump actually lost votes that you probably didn't expect. You're going to see that, that white men went backwards um, in terms of their support for uh, President Trump. You're going to see college educator, uh, college educated individuals went backwards uh, 16% in terms of theirs. So being a white man that's college educated, am I going to take credit for this? Of course I am. Um, it was me that drove this bus. So um, senior citizens went backwards 4%. Um, but at the end of the day, we talked about mail-in, mail-in, mail-in. One party pushed mail-in heavily. The other party said, get out, go out, vote, do your due diligence. And you're going to see these major cities, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, um, they're going to drive this thing. They're going to drive this bus and they're driving Joe Biden to the White House in January. So it was a roller coaster of a day. The memes have been outstanding. If you haven't had the opportunity, go find the video of the Avengers Endgame scene that then ties all these Democrats into it coming to beat Thanos. It's one of the best videos <laughs> I've ever seen. So um, if, if for the, you know, there was a lot of issues and people screaming about cheating. Um, the one thing I will say is you, you can't call cheating, you know, a week after an election, a day after an election. There's no evidence. There's nothing that supports that. We have a democracy that's had mail-in voting going back every year. It feels like that, that we voted and there's never been anything. So that that's a shame. And if you look at the Senate, um, if, if Democrats were going to cheat, that Senate would be uh, much more blue than it is today. So um, hopefully this is a great day and hopefully this is what we need to drive the change that we're all here for. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Steve, in terms of you know, what you were mentioning with the difference in the direction of how to get out there and vote, how to use your voice and taking advantage of the mail-in ballots. It made things a lot easier for people to you know, be a part of the process when typically they may not be a part of the process. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, it was scrutinized maybe early on, but Vice President-elect Kamala Harris being selected as the running mate with Joe Biden, I think, gave a lot of stability and a lot of um, credibility to what Joe Biden was offering and what he was pitching towards diversity and making sure minorities had a seat at the table and, and were taken care of if they supported him in this election. So, you know, I know the numbers are still coming out and we're still seeing exactly what the demographics are in terms of who supported Biden and what specific areas. But I can't help but imagine how much Kamala Harris had an impact on getting the black vote, especially the black vote in Detroit, um, other areas, Philadelphia, Atlanta, some of the big metropolitan areas that ended up carrying uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris over the finish line with the win. Yeah, and you're going to see, too, um, if, if you take the United States map and you just look at the black vote, men and women combined, um, all 50 states are going to be blue. So once again, here here we come down to it, the, the, the Democrats – they win an election and it's on the backs of who? People of color. And it, it happens time and time again. 
And uh, yeah, the, it, what a historic and amazing, and it, it, it can't be said enough. I mean, I have daughters, but I couldn't even imagine um, being a black woman in today's world. I'm not going to even try to guess what that feels like to watch a vice president go on the stage. Um, it, um, my eight-year-old daughter was ecstatic about it and still is and brags to everybody. This is an iconic moment. This is an amazing moment that just like when Obama became and John McCain gave one of the best speeches um, that anybody's ever gave. And he said, the people have spoken and they've spoken clearly. And this is a great time for our country. I think it's awesome. I hope we all embrace it, get behind. Obviously we're going to have to fight the, uh, the Trump flags flying on trucks. They're, they're not going to be too, happy right now but hopefully this is going to be a great time in our country and we can really uh shoot this divisiveness in the foot and then bring us closer together you know just piggyback on what steve said there i think it's so important to not, not forget the historic candidacy of kamala harris and i think you can really uh i think draw a straight line between joe biden's traditional and historic support from the african-american community throughout his career as a politician through his win in South Carolina in the primary, which re-energized his campaign, which was basically over at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then trace that to his selection of Kamala Harris as his VP, and then trace that to the high voter turnout that you were just talking about in large urban areas like Philadelphia and Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta won Georgia for Joe Biden. Uh, Pennsylvania and some of the surrounding or. Philadelphia, Philadelphia County, Bucks County, and some of those areas around Philadelphia won the state for Joe Biden. And I think you can really just draw a straight line between all of those occurrences to show how important African-Americans were and, and Kamala Harris was to this ticket and and her broader appeal to young women and girls in this country. You know, and just one other thing, I think, so this Trump era in general for me, um, you know, it's, it's been tough for a lot of people and at the risk of downplaying sort of the harm that has already been done um, to the marginalized groups, you know, who have felt the sting of these times most deeply, most keenly. I truly believe the Trump era will be remembered, not for the, the ugliness it revealed, uh, but for the fire it ignited, mm-hmm. the voices that it lifted. And the social awareness um, that it conjured. I mean, think about it. The Women's March, the Me Too movement, March for Our Lives, Mm -hmm. Republicans for the Rule of Law, uh, renewed activism around police brutality, um, discussion about systemic racism. I think this will be the lasting legacy of of this moment, you know, that when we as Americans were faced with some of the darker aspects of our country and of our history, we decided that it was up to us to be better and to do better. You know, it reminds me of that quote from Maya Angelou. I'm going to paraphrase. It might not be correct here, but she said something like, once you know better, do better. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And once you know better, you do better. Once you see a brighter side, see a better way of doing things, you go do it. And I think that's what really, to me, will be the story of this uh, of these past four years. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong, because if if Hillary Clinton gets elected, we're probably not all sitting here talking right now. 
there probably isn't some of these fires that you said get ignited. So, I mean, that's, if you want to drive change, that, that that's the way to do it, right? We've been sweeping things underneath the rug uh, for long enough and we just kept, but, but finally somebody toppled over it and hurt themselves. And that's, what's caused us uproar to look and, and look underneath there and see what's underneath there. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I'm sure uh, President Trump would have tried to use that for his campaign speech to get four more years to really drive, you know, even more change down the line. But luckily, we we got only four years. We just needed the four years to get. We, yeah, we just. Yeah, I, I I don't know what this country would have done if we would have had another four years. I, yeah. I I had said we're on the verge of a civil war and somebody said that's what an over exaggeration. And I'm like, I is it? Because people are people were frustrated, and and so that's why you've seen it, and you've seen, like I said, and it, you're even getting Republicans and senior citizens and people that historically voted, um, and that's why I always felt like Joe Biden wasn't the guy that if I was in charge of Democrats, I would have put out there if it's me. But I said it, I tweeted it in 2019. He was the guy to beat Trump, and it, 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 I really felt like if this was a poker game and your odds of winning, it had to be Joe Biden. Um, and I'm just really, really honored that he chose Kamala Harris. And I am super excited to see that cabinet, that administration and, and where we go, because I think it's going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think regardless of exactly what reason there was, you know, obviously people who supported uh, Trump in 2016, whether it was climate change issues, the economy now with COVID-19, the handling of COVID-19 from a health perspective, the social injustice issues and how we handled those. I mean, there's a litany of ways and reasons you could have went off of supporting him if you did in 2016. So uh, I'll be interested to see exactly what those numbers are as more surveys come out, exactly what people were thinking when they voted differently, because obviously he still did get a lot of votes. And I think that's something that can't go without notice, too, is that he didn't win. We didn't see Trump lose, you know, by a landslide landslide. He didn't get less than 30 percent of the popular vote. He still took in a very large chunk of one of the highest turnout uh, elections in history. So, you know, with that being said, you know, there still is a lot of um work to be done. You know, obviously one presidential election isn't going to change anything. And if anything, I think the past four years have really highlighted how much change is needed and how much we still have to work together locally to to figure things out because, you know, at the top, people still, you know, support who they're going to support for whatever reason. I think that's a good point, Adam. You know, we make so much of partisanship in these times, right? Because partisanship seems to be the driving force in politics right now. Um, Especially negative partisanship Mm -hmm. where you basically hate the other party um, and you, and your political identity is formed around that. Right. And so as long as they're on your team or in your tribe, then you support them. But I think this election helped prove not that partisanship necessarily drives our politics, but that candidates do. Mm-hmm. The can- a candidate matters. And I'm from a state, Nevada, which was a swing state for a long time. It's trending blue now, but my county that I'm in, Washoe County, Northern Nevada, is kind of a swing county in a swing state. Mm-hmm. And for a, a few election cycles has determined the outcome 
of statewide elections because Clark County tends to go heavily blue. The rest of Nevada tends to go heavily red. And then there's this Washoe County that's a swing county. And so, you know, I've, I've been used to this my entire life where, where uh, the county goes for the Democratic presidential candidate, but elects a lot of Republicans down the ballot right? Where people split the ticket. And I think that kind of political um, uh, hybrid is common out here. And I think we need to get used to that and be okay with that in our, in our national life and, and give people more room to be true to their political convictions instead of, you know, tethered to a partisan political identity. Right. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, you know, I think as we move forward from the presidential election at the lower levels, you know, we saw not everything shaking out blue in terms of senator races. And, you know, in particular, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, some of the you know largest supporters of Trump and most outspoken uh, advocates of Trump and some of his rhetoric, they were pretty uh sound winners in their races for their Senate seat. So, you know, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, even over Jamie Harrison. I know, Steve, that you talked about Jamie Harrison and how much money was pushed in his campaign and how much Lindsey Graham had done to pretty much show the way he felt about minorities who weren't conservative. Uh, and he still was able to win by over 10 percentage points. So, you know, I think, again, there still shows that there's work to be done and that there's, you know, a level of working together with people who have different views, regardless of where they're, where, where you feel like they should come out. Yeah. I, <laughs> Lindsey Graham was the King and sat on the throne of my trash candidate of the week for every podcast. Or I thought for sure that guy was going home. I, I didn't know about Mitch McConnell and some of the other ones, but I just thought that guy put his foot in his mouth more times in the past month than any candidate I maybe have ever seen outside of Donnie one terms, um, one term. So I, I think for me, I was very, you know, Jamie Harrison in the, in likes a lot. I'm just like candidates matter. Money doesn't necessarily matter. Mm-hmm. Party plays an influential, but it, it comes down to candidates and they just, and that's, it might be backwards thinking or whatever it is. I'm not a South Carolina native. I can't speak for it. Um, but the guys, you know, he's been a puppet for the Trump administration after knocking Trump when he was just trying to run in favor of others. So, like I said, the guy is the most hypocritical politician, I think, in the Senate. And I don't even think it's close. And to still get reelected, that's where you kind of sit here and go, OK, Trump's gone. But progress, there is so much progress to still be made that we're still not looking past some things. And, and maybe that just comes down to the fact that, you know, people are going to vote Biden, but then they were going to vote red and try to keep it a Republican Senate for a check and balances purpose. I don't I don't know what the exact reason is, but um, it, it was very upsetting to see Lindsey Lindsey Graham hold. And, and I believe, you know, I, I always looked at the odds throughout and I, you know, if you went to bed at midnight Eastern time, Joe Biden was a very heavy underdog to win the election. But before the election, there was a better chance the Senate was going to be blue than Joe Biden was going to be president. It, it was extremely close. So I think this is a very shocking um, aspect that transpired, but it's the reality of how we vote still in 2020. Yeah. And Steve, you mentioned that uh, balance issue and Zalam, I know you want to chime in too, but I just wanted to quickly touch base on a couple other Senate races or 
things that could have impact on the Senate. One, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, one of the two seats in Georgia, she was able to get a lot of support. And obviously that support, Democratic support helped her and helped Joe Biden and Kamala Harris get a lot of the Atlanta vote and a lot of the the push that allowed him to win Georgia. But she's actually going to be in a runoff in January for the Senate seat. And also there was a vote in Puerto Rico and in Puerto Rico, they voted to approve uh, the push for statehood. So if they were to be recognized as a state, then obviously they would get full representation as um, a state normally would, including two Senate seats. So, you know, I, I think from a liberal perspective, the idea of minority focus and minority centric Senate seats, you might have three more potentially in the in the near future, depending on how quickly the statehood process comes together for Puerto Rico. Yeah, I think, you know, the Senate is such an interesting institution. Um, and, you know, for I think this, I think the framers intended the Senate to be um, how it was described early on, which is like the cooling saucer, right, of our of our passions, meaning the House is the direct representatives from the states and the congressional districts and, and get loud and and passionate, boisterous in that chamber. And then once the bill moves to the Senate, that's the deliberative body, right, where things slow down, where bills get well thought through, et cetera. And that's why they have six-year terms as opposed to two-year terms to insulate them from the passions of the majority. But the Senate lately has ended up being, you know, a, a, a place where bills go to die, right? And it's, it's, it's served to leave American democracy sort of struggling to, to get things done. I mean, mm-hmm. Harry Truman uh, complained about the do nothing Congress <laughs> back during his presidential era, you know, the late forties, early fifties, um, that do nothing Congress that he complained about passed multiple times more bills than the last few, the last few Congresses have passed in the modern era. I mean, let's talk about a do nothing Congress. I mean, that's why their approval ratings are so low, right? It's cause they don't get anything done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, this statehood idea, at least with Puerto Rico and these, these Georgia Senate races are, are ways to, you know, to allow the Democratic Party to get more uh, seats in the Senate and help move that process along. But again, you know, there is something to the Senate being not just another lever of government that can be pulled by, you know, a, 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 by a party. I mean, there is some, I think, wisdom to having divided government where you have to actually appeal to people in the other party and where you don't just ram things down the throat of Americans. And so, you know, there are, there are two sides to that coin. And I, um, I just think it's, 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 it's going to be interesting to see what Puerto Rico does or what the Congress does with this statehood idea. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you a hundred percent in that sense. And that's what, it is funny that, you know, California gets two senators and so does Maine. Then you get the electoral college, you start breaking it down. So, you know, our government has definitely earned um, the criticism that it's gotten based on some of those ideologies. And this is why people have sheared away from politics. They just don't understand it from a comprehension standpoint or why does it matter? What does it do? You know, the good news is I, I hope people really, really learn that 
I mean, this election came down to that it just got announced Saturday and there was tens of thousands of votes. And if you break it up by counties, you can be talking about in some states, um, single digits, double digit votes away from election being for another individual. So, yeah, I, I hope this really triggers getting more people involved from that standpoint, getting more ideas in the room. I'm with you. I like checks and balances. I've always said I'm a, a centrist in the sense that I just don't like items being pushed too fast, too forward, um, because that's how you get chaos. So when you can walk and when you get people from the other party lines to see your ideas, then you know it's a really good one because they think differently than you do. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that'll be interesting if that were to happen and the Democrats were to get that type of control over the Senate, you know, how that would play against the pretty heavily conservative Supreme Court right now with the 6-3 advantage there. And if that would balance each other out and how they would butt heads on certain issues over the next few years um, as that played itself out. But, you know, in terms of the other measures, obviously the Puerto Rico statehood measure, that was a, a huge measure on the ballot. Uh, going through some others that were out there, Zalem, I know that we talked about Prop 16 in California, and we talked about this a couple episodes ago as well, Steve, and for the listeners out there, just a reminder, Prop 16 in California, it's basically a double negative. So right now there is a restriction in play that doesn't allow the government to give preferential treatment for their public employment, their public education, and other public assistance, public benefits. Uh, public funds, basically. And and preferential treatment in this instance would be uh, affirmative action, other things geared towards minorities, women, uh, people of color and other disadvantaged groups to gain more equity in society. Now, you know, like I said, right now, there's a restriction to prevent that from happening. But Proposition 16 was on the ballot to allow uh, the government to remove that restriction and start to give preference to minority groups. Unfortunately, Proposition 16 got voted down pretty convincingly at a 58% or 56.5% mark. Um, and that was a little surprising given that Biden won California uh, by almost 63%, I believe. So uh, when I saw that, I, I was pretty surprised. Alalam, you spent a lot of time in California when you went to California Western out here for law school. What were your thoughts when you saw Prop 16 get uh, struck down like this? I'm no longer a resident of California, but, you know, I'm close. So I pay attention, like you said. And um, yeah, that I think that was a little surprising. And it was surprising just, I think, only to, for me, for one reason in particular, which was this Prop 16 was seeking to overturn Prop 209, right, back in the day from 1996, which banned affirmative action in higher education practices. And um, California was a you know pretty different state back in 1996. Still liberal, but not as ethnically diverse. I mean, it was ethnically ethnically diverse at the time when you compare it to other states at the time. But just since then, it's gotten you know a, just a huge influx of Latinx population and Asian Americans. And so, I just thought based on the demographic shift that. Um, this Prop 16 would have turned out differently, but obviously I was wrong. Um, what's what's kind of interesting about it is that it brings up the idea, you know, it raises the issue of affirmative action again, 
And uh, just today, there was a there was a case brought in North Carolina. Trial started today in North Carolina federal court over an affirmative action policy at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Hmm. And so uh, UNC is now defending in court how it considers race in its undergraduate admissions process. And uh, it kind of stems from a lawsuit back in 2014 led by um, um, an affirmative, well, an affirmative, a group that is against affirmative action led by an activist named Edward Blum. Edward Blum, for those of you that um, follow this kind of stuff, is an activist who who, who, who seeks out cases to bring. <laughs> and he ended up being one of the men who, who brought the Fisher case in Texas, which was kind of the latest case at the United States Supreme court about affirmative action. So he is, he is behind this, but the lawsuit claims that the university unfairly uses race when considering applications, giving preference to black and Hispanic students over white and Asian American candidates. And this theory is a, is a kind of a similar theory uh, to the recent Harvard case where Harvard was sued for its affirmative action policy, uh, where the plaintiffs there lost in district court and that's been appealed. So the affirmative action policy at Harvard was upheld by the court and now it's being appealed. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also similar to that Fisher case I just mentioned, which was the case out of Texas where a, where a white prospective student alleged that, uh, the university of Texas at Austin, unlawfully favored black and Hispanic applicants over other students. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see what this North Carolina case does, particularly in light of what we're seeing in California, where they basically rejected affirmative action. Um, and, and then compared to what the other uh, courts have done in this area, but in general, uh, affirmative action is still deemed constitutional by the U S Supreme court stringing all the way back to the 1970s in a case out of the University of California. And so uh, over time, the court has had occasions to interpret what that means. And the court has found that race in admissions um, is appropriate to consider because diversity of student population serves what's called a compelling government interest. Mm -hmm. um, and so with this new shift at, at the Supreme Court, right? We'll see if, if that changes. Um, I think the Grutter and Grass decisions from the early 2000s um, were five to four decisions. I think Sandra Day O'Connor wrote uh, one of those opinions as as the, as the swing justice. And so, you know, maybe that'll change now with a, with a new composition of the Supreme Court. But yeah, that prop, that Prop 16 ballot question was interesting to me for a whole host of reasons. I think one aspect, too, and Steve, maybe you can chime in here as well. Uh, I saw that, you know, not only was there a potential for that gap of, you know, maybe white voters who were going against Trump and voting for Biden and maybe not voting against this, but also just a confusion in the fact that the the way that the proposition read, it was basically a double negative where you're repealing something to repeal something else. And I think that trip people up sometimes when they're trying to figure out exactly which side to vote on and voting for yes. When you're saying, Hey, I do want affirmative action when actually yes meant I don't want affirmative action that can lead to 
that kind of confusion that, you know, you'd hope that there's enough voter education out there. But I think in this instance, you know, dealing with the the groups that are most affected by this measure, it seems like the the numbers don't really seem to align with what their benefits would have been. Yeah, I would. I it's funny how you said, because what I was thinking to myself is when you read some of these props, no matter what state you're on, I am, let's put it this way. I, I have a bachelor's degree. I am college educated. Yes, it took me six years. Um, I'm just very blessed to be with two law school superstars currently on the podcast right now. But let me explain to you two uh, what it's like for some of us average individuals. Sometimes it's a tough read. and You have to read it over and over again. And then you have to research. And it's almost like you're just trying to find some. Can somebody put this in layman's terms. And I think we've done a better job at that, but I'm going to go out on the limb and say the average person doesn't take it that far. They're going to read the prop that they probably didn't look at before they showed up at the polls. And when it gets a little confusing and they don't know the way they're doing it, does that come into account? Now, obviously a high percentage being shot down, if it was extremely close, you could probably get into that, but um, it, it doesn't appear to be that way. Um, I do find that interesting. I just, you know, I would wonder, and, and maybe we'll get the stats, you know, does California do better than other states um, when it comes to the opportunities um, for different ethnicities that people don't think it's important compared to other places? There, there would be questions I would ask. I'm with you in a sense that it's kind of odd that um, when when race and divisiveness is obviously one of the biggest aspects of this election that gets shot down in a state that is California. <laughs> it wasn't like it got shot down in Mississippi or in, in obviously uh, fanboy Lindsey Graham state of South Carolina. So um, yeah, that, that part I would, I would wonder, but I do think when it comes to different props, it's a lot of times it's a tough read and I get the legal aspect that you have to, and I don't expect them to be like, this is what this means in layman's terms, but that's just something we have to deal with. That's a reality. You know, I mean, Steve, though, these don't need to be written the way they're written. I mean, right. So there, there should be a plain language requirement and maybe there is in California. I think there is one in the state of Nevada, but there should be a plain language requirement for, for uh, a ballot question to tell the voter what it really means. And I'll just tell you, I was reading an article about this proposition in uh, on the website inside higher education. And it explained that, you know, there's a poll taken on this question by the Latino community foundation. And it found that a slim majority, um, of the Latinx population agreed with their proposal, which was to right repeal the ban on affirmative action. Another way to say that is to allow affirmative action programs. Right. Um, however, the poll also asked the voters uh, what they perceived the proposition to do. And 32% believe that voting yes on the proposition, meaning to repeal the ban and allow affirmative action, they thought that voting yes would preserve the status quo and block the consideration of race and ethnicity in admissions. And so a third of them were confused. And I think that directly relates to the language of uh, the ballot question that was used and just how important that could be. I mean, look, what if they accurately 
read the question, would there have been a different result? I don't know. Um, and, and, and I'm not saying which result is good or bad. I'm just saying people should know what they're voting for. Right. And, and sometimes with these ballot questions, they don't, which is unfortunate. And Steve, I think you brought up a good point too, that the, the margin of victory here for this proposition does make it seem unlikely that confusion could be the main source of why this didn't get uh, passed to allow affirmative action and other preferential treatment in the future. So that makes you wonder, like, what is it that one keeps people from wanting to provide these advantages, quote unquote, to groups that have been historically disadvantaged for years and years and generations? Or what do people think are viable alternatives that can be, you know, put in place that don't need affirmative action or other type of preferential treatment. Because, you know, if you support equality, if you're okay with building your community and finding unified ways to collaborate and allow everybody to come up, these are the ways to do that. So if you're not, if you're supporting it on one hand, but then voting against measures like these on the other, what's the, where's the disconnect and, you know, where are we missing um, what, you know, that perspective in terms of what can be, a, a viable option when something like that doesn't work for them. Yeah. Good point. And I think the last one, this is a little bit uh happier subject for some people out there. Some of our listeners, we have, I believe five more States to decriminalize marijuana. Um, and one state in particular, Oregon, who's already decriminalized marijuana also decriminalized the small possession and use of uh cocaine and other uh, more, uh, I guess where they schedule one drugs from the federal perspective in their uh, state. So, you know, that's that's a, a big change and it shows a growing trend. I think uh, a lot of followers of the cannabis industry are already expecting, you know, with the Biden win that nationwide decriminalization is around the corner. But Zalalem, from what you've seen in states like your hometown state in Nevada and from your career as a prosecutor, how does this type of uh, new law play a role on the expungement of old felonies and old uh, convictions related to marijuana? So the effect of these laws are going to vary state by state, right? And each law, each um, state can attach expungement to it if it wants. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what Oregon did here and expungement for those of you listening is basically getting your criminal record sealed um, to show that you never even got arrested, never even got convicted, right? And so um, I'm kind of torn on these because on the one hand, I tend to believe in the harm principle that John Stuart Mill outlined in his famous pamphlet called On Liberty, which is you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't affect somebody else. Um, and so there's some merit to that, I think, but on the other hand, you know, having been a prosecutor for so long, I saw, I mean, over, over 95, over, over 99% of the cases I prosecuted had some nexus to substance abuse. Either they had drugs on them and they were being prosecuted for it, or they were high at the time they committed the crime. And that's why they did it either to get more money to buy more drugs or because it just induced them into a state where they had no control over their behavior. And so substances and drugs are just so intertwined with the criminal justice system 
that it's hard for me to just be on the record saying I support decriminalization of everything, right? I mean, and, you know, I think oftentimes uh, that kind of attitude can, you know, kind of overlook how serious some of these addiction issues actually are for people, you know, and once we start decriminalizing things and kind of as a society not paying much attention to them anymore, I think we can lose sight of how destructive substances can be to people. I mean, I know that um, from being a prosecutor and just from being an American, you know, you've seen that. And so, yeah, from the, from a criminal justice perspective, it's a mixed bag, I think, but I think in general, probably good for people who, you know, who are sick and not criminals, right? We said this about the opioid academic, the, uh, the epidemic that we've seen with heroin and and opiates that these aren't criminals they're sick um and you know the same rule applied back in the crack crack epidemic although we didn't say so um we treated that more like a criminal justice issue than a healthcare issue mm-hmm. uh, but i think you know overall i think states you know do what's best for their own populations and 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 whether they attach expungement to it, I think is their own prerogative. But one other thing, like I don't think the growth in the criminal justice system over from the 1970s until now has been because people have been uh, prosecuted and thrown into prison for low level amounts of marijuana, right? That's just not, that's just not the case. And so even if these sort of decriminalization laws passed nationwide, I don't think we'd see a, a, a large, a large exodus of people out of jail and prison being held for years and years uh, for possession of marijuana. I mean, people are held in prison for violent crime, for trafficking and hard drugs, etc. And so, um, yeah, that's my view. Um, I uh, very, very similar. You know, when the Oregon thing was announced, I thought to myself, is it time? And what I mean by that is blow is one of my favorite movies. And every time I watch it, I look at Johnny Depp and I go, man, that guy had it good. So I thought to myself, do I pack it up? Do I go to Oregon? And do I really attack this thing and become, you know, the next, but I guess since it's small amounts, I'll just stick to my day job and, and move on. But, um, I think ultimately the, the opioid aspect, I can't believe it's not medical across the states, especially cannabis. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. You'll take these prescription drugs that you create in a lab, shove them down 18-year-olds' mouths, then they get addicted, then they move on to heroin, and then they're homeless sitting on the street, and you say, see, you should have never done drugs. But the issue, the problem that we have with drugs, like Salam said, is it's a healthcare issue. It shouldn't be throwing people into prisons. We need to be helping. When people get fat eating McDonald's, um, and they become obese and have heart attacks, we treat them the same way. We don't throw them in jail and go, you shouldn't have been eating Big Macs every day. So it's essentially almost the same thing. So I do agree, you have to draw the line. We, we don't need every state allowing heroin and, and mushrooms and acid because each one of us on here probably knows somebody that suffers from substance abuse, substance abuse issues and hasn't been able to re, uh, achieve their max potential that they should have. So I think there's some things we need to focus on. And I, I think the other ones, I don't know what Oregon 
was necessarily thinking I don't live in the state. It's just kind of one of those things you see on the sidelines. I'd be lying if I said I dove in to see why. Um, but there are a lot of people serving very large prison sentences for carrying drugs. Um, and then we have people that commit really violent crimes that served half less or none sentences. So I do think our systems, it, it's never going to be perfect, but there is a flaw there and, it, and it's fair to uh, criticize it and try to find a better solution. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that's important to point out with all of these measures to decriminalize or legalize certain substances, a lot of the times that the the money that's either earned through the revenue of, like, say, for example, cannabis sales, that's um, reinvested in the community. And, you know, with the uh, other bills of decriminalization, usually the money that's saved in terms of law enforcement that goes towards treatment and health care and other uh, social services that really kind of tie together to what you guys are saying of here's what the real focus should be health care, not law enforcement and punishing when people just need help in those situations. So you know, we'll see how they play out. And obviously, you know, it's not for every state. That's why the states have their own sovereignty to make decisions and to uh, do things that they feel are best for their citizens. So, and their residents. So, you know, we'll see how things play out, but it, it is exciting to see that, you know, after this election cycle, there are more areas that are trying to attack the situation with creative ideas and do things that are outside the box to give people help more than punish people for, you know, some of the, the things that come up in life. So um, with that in mind, let's move towards a question of the week. And we're, we're getting ready to wrap soon. But this is a big question with the election right behind us. Uh, Steve, I want to start with you on this. How are you going to interact with people that, you know, were very staunch Trump supporters all the way to the end? You know, people that were uh, posting fraud and the voting and other issues with the process all the way through, you know, even today where it still hasn't been officially announced. How are you going to interact with those uh, people going forward? You know, I'm going to keep trying to educate. Um, that's what we're here for. This is what we started it for. And we have some some ideas and platforms that, that we're going to bring in that um, I'll be excited that we're all going to share in the future. But look, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, when you when you see individuals flying that flag and screaming, you know, Trump 2020 and all these different things, I think that's what cost him the election there towards the end, because I found really cool things. You know, when I saw in Utah, there was this whole Trump parade, but you saw families and a lot of white families standing there with Black Lives Matter signs and they would give them the finger or just they would be extremely um, polite or whatever the term is you want to you want to use there doing it. And I just thought that was really cool. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we can't say that all Trump supporters are racist because now the numbers don't say that because there's only one group of individuals that went backwards. And what I mean by that is that white men that looked like me went backwards from percentage. Black men higher voted for Trump than they did in 2016. Black women higher voted for Trump than they did in 2016. So you can't call all Trump supporters racist. But what I think the criticism that would be for 100% of Trump voters is that they tolerate racism. And, and whether that's to the extreme, whether that's minimal, you could get into a million different things. I get voting Republican. I would never question anybody's fiscally conservative beliefs. 
I would never, um, I would, I would question the pro-life aspect a little bit, but I totally get where they're coming from. Um, but, but for me, I think we just have to continue to educate. You just hope, you know, there's individuals that voted for Trump that listen to this podcast that want to have conversations. And then there's individuals that voted for him out of sheer um, hatred. And those are going to be the individuals, either get them out of your life or you're going to really need to continue to work on them. And if they're youth, we have to continue to work on them. I think that's such a good point, Steve. All those are great points. Um, I think this harkens back just to what I said about Nevada in general and my county in general, which is, you know, we're swing county, kind of a swing state. We're trending blue, but historically we've been a swing state. And and if you're a, a Republican here, you've uh, had to be friends with Democrats. If you're a Democrat here, you've had to be friends with Republicans. And I have family, friends, acquaintances, neighbors in my life who I know and love who voted for Donald Trump. And I still know them, I still love them, right? I think negative partisanship, like we've been saying, just makes hating Democrats really the purpose of politics for some Republicans. And it's not, you know, I mean, our challenges are so big. You know, we have climate change, economic inequality. We're tackling thorny issues like uh, racism, privilege, healthcare, equality. I mean, things that are so thorny and personal and just fraught with emotion. We're unpacking so much that I think more than ever, we have to have some space for redemption for people. If we ever want to heal, if we ever want to move on, like redemption allows people to be honest. Like what this tightrope walk we're on where people are afraid to admit what they really think, right? Just makes everybody not want to get caught. (laughs) That's all that does. It doesn't move us forward. In fact, that's why I think polling was so difficult with Donald Trump and why the polls were so wrong is because a lot of people didn't want to admit they were voting for him. Nope. Right? And so redemption is this space, I think, is a concept I think we need to ruminate on and think about in terms of being a good listener and trying to connect with people who might be of a different party, might be of a different ideological perspective, but realize that we are Americans first and that, and that we can't really tackle these huge problems unless we do it together. And so mm-hmm. um, that's my view. I'm gonna treat them the same way I've treated them. I'm gonna love them, I'm gonna respect them. I may not talk politics all the time, <laughs> but um, just let them know that we're all humans and that we can talk about this without getting you know upset with each other and hating each other, you know, because I think that just prevents any kind of communication from happening. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, it's a great summaries of element. I think, you know, the whole idea with collaboration and then accountability that puts responsibility on both sides. And I think there are people who need to wake up and realize what our society has endured and what our society is from a racial perspective and a racism perspective. And the inequality that's here, you know, isn't by coincidence. It isn't, you know, a a weird phenomenon that's unexplainable. You know, a lot of the things are right in front of us in terms of why there's discrimination, where it comes from, where it is in our lives. And, you know, at the same time, you know, like you were saying, Steve and Zalalem, that you can't make this a cancel culture where people are afraid to have their background beliefs 
discussed and come up and just be a person without, you know, feeling like they're going to get labeled into something that makes them exiled from their friend group or from whatever their social bubble is. So, you know, I think there is a middle ground there because you can't be complacent or allow ignorant beliefs just to perpetuate when you know that factually and, you know, historically speaking, some of those things just aren't correct, but you do have to have the correct tone and approach to not come off as, you know, sounding like, you know, all and that your, your way is the only way, because, you know, there are a lot of different policies and things out there, but nothing's really figured it out yet. So we're all still trying to figure out exactly what the right formula is. And, you know, collaboration definitely is a key in that. So, you know, I, I, I think that we what we talked about over the last few weeks and trash candidates and all that stuff. We said a lot of that, you know, jokingly. And, you know, while it was a lot based on truth, Lindsey Graham, he is horrible. But (laughs) at the same time, we are trying to have this as a collaboration with everybody and not trying to push people away and not make this a win lose situation just because of how the results on 11 or 11 three came out. I guess 11 nine now, 11 ten whatever the final day is after the electoral college is decided and president Biden is inaugurated, you know, we still have to keep working together from there. So I think that does have to be the focus. Yeah. I mean, I think the two party system, um, I don't know if it was necessarily divide, you know, created to necessarily divide us. Um, but imagine if we didn't have that and we came together, cause right now we're pushing us this way and it's only going to get worse. And, and Donald Trump really escalated that. And you're hoping now that we can bring it in a little bit and we can just stand here and talk back and forth, but we can't be, you know, miles and miles across. And I, I, I truly believe like Zalalem said at the beginning, there is an aspect where he was a blessing because you guys can't tell me you haven't seen more white people yelling black lives matter or standing up for injustices on social media than you've ever seen. And it's coming and I, I'll even be the first to say this coming from people that I would have never expected that if you would have asked me, I would have been like, you're a Trump supporter or mm, I have a feeling that your family different type is racist. So that the stereotypes aren't necessarily there. Um, I just hope that at this time, you know, the people have spoken. Joe Biden got more votes than any candidate in the history. And I'm here to tell you as a Democrat, we don't even love him like that. <laughs> I, I don't know how from that aspect. So that just shows how essentially vile we portrayed the other candidate. And I really want Republicans to take a look in the mirror. I, I hope and pray that in 2024, whether it's Dan Crenshaw or whoever runs that I can look at it and be like, I disagree with his views, but as an individual, I don't have a problem with him. And if he beats my candidate in an election, I go, "Eh, okay. And I move on. I pray that that happens again. I'm ready to get back to that type of politics. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, last thing, as we wrap up the show, I, I think that, you know, like Zalalem said, a lot of the change and a lot of the energy and action that we've seen can be tied to Trump's divisiveness, but, you know, Trump's going to be gone hopefully sooner than later. And he won't be uh, a scapegoat for a lot of the negativity that's still going to be there in 2021 and beyond. And we can't keep blaming him. We have to start working together and figuring this out. So, you know, as much as he got things started in terms of his behavior and demeanor, stoking other people to just push back against that and have some decency, we have to realize that 
this isn't all based on him. And going forward, this isn't just a, a Trump, non-Trump issue. It's definitely a lot larger than that and has been in America for centuries. It's a great point. So on that note, let's get into the action items as we wrap up this week. Steve, what are your action items this week? You know, we're going to focus on progress moving forward. Um, you know, I, I would probably say that when I, you know, I, I sit and I think like the election's over and it's kind of like a, a now what situation. So I guess we'll have to dive into something like that later. But I just want to see uh, I want to see change. I want to see better. I want to see a feeling of relief. And then let's let's move forward. But put on your mask and social distance um, so that we don't have to go through what we went through last year. How about you, Zalala? Yeah, just a short action item, pretty easy. Uh, you know, you have political power. We see that now. When you come, at, uh, come out and vote or you go out and volunteer, you can make a difference. And so think about what kind of trail you're going to be leaving, uh, not just in your life, but, you know, with your family, with your friends. What example are you setting and what trail are you going to leave in a, such a interesting period in American history where so much is shifting in terms of the demographic shifts, our conversations about feminism, our conversations about sexism, our conversations about race and racism. Uh, what are you going to do in your own life uh, to make this country a more perfect union? That's it. Love it. That's great. Uh, I think mine is just to keep building off of this momentum. And, you know, a lot of times people vote for the presidential election and they, they go into hibernation, maybe until the midterms, maybe until the next presidential election. But let's not have that be the case here, because that type of behavior led to us getting in the 2016 election, us getting in the situation that led to Donald Trump being in office. So let's continue to take that activism, that energy and that desire to do better for our community. And let's just keep building off of that as we move forward. And like Steve said, we alluded to, we got some big things happening very soon. So we're excited to get that going and we can't wait to have you guys be a part of that. So on that note, Please reach out. Please visit our Facebook page. Please, please visit us online at thecommittedcollective.org. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. See what's our Twitter handle? Committed Collective. Underscore. Oh, underscore. And you just put me on the spot right in front of, right in front of everybody. No, I got it right here. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. So it's at Champion Change underscore. It's the All committed right. collective at champion change underscore. I, I thought you had that. I, I kind of signaled to. I kind of signaled to you. Adam, I mean, I'm making fantasy football moves right now. Okay, you're gonna have to excuse me for a second. Um, no, at at champion change underscore. At champion change underscore. So you can follow us on Twitter as well, Instagram, everything. So for Adam Stone, Steve Kerwin, Zalalem Bagali, thank you for joining us. See you next time, guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you would like to learn more about the Committed Collective or any of the initiatives that we're supporting currently, please connect with us at the underscore Committed Collective on Instagram or on Facebook. If you'd like to ask any follow-up questions of today's host or guest about our conversation, feel free to email us at info at the Committed Collective.org. 
Be sure to also subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date on our topics, information, and other events. If you'd like to join the collective, you can follow us on Instagram and join us on our Slack community. Remember, you can take an active role in your sphere of influence and champion change now. 